0: My name is Isabel Ashley, host of the Baker Radio Show, Broadway Bangers. If you haven't checked it out yet, you can probably assume that I am a big fan of all things musical theater. So today I'll be touching on many different aspects dealing with the evolution of the Broadway musical. Obviously, that's a very broad topic, so I'll be looking at it through the scope of one musical that really changed the way American musicals were written and performed for the rest of time, honestly. As well as some of the biggest names in Broadway composers in American history. So I hope you find this topic as interesting and important as I do. Because I feel like musicals aren't analyzed and assessed as seriously as plays are, especially, you know, you know, Shakespeare plays are often analyzed and assessed in literature classes, but you never really look into the literature of a musical script. And you know, why is that? Why why don't we think that musicals have that same kind of depth and importance? And these questions, this idea, can be summed up by the dissertation, Intersections of Theater Theories of Spectatorship with Musical Theater Practices in Performance and Production by Jean Louise Balch. She asks, is it because musical theater is not considered to be a part of legitimate theater as it is too embedded in the commercialized theater world? Is it considered only a culinary form of entertainment and not worthy of discussion? Could it be that, as a genre, it lacks the voice of a theorist to elevate its practices and concerns into the scholarly world of discourse? Is it due to the difficulty of studying musical theater outside of the actual experience of it, since the performance includes a multiplicity of texts in libretto, music, lyrics, choreography, and staging? To answer these questions, let's fast forward to the year 1943, the show of focus being away we go. A few weeks later, under the new title of Oklahoma, Roger and Hammerstein's self-styled musical play arrived in New York and changed the course of American musical theater. According to theaterhistory.com, the saga of the trials and tribulations of Oklahoma before it reached its premier performance in New York to become one of the surpassing triumphs of the American theater is now a twice-told tale. Oklahoma indeed had no legs, in the form of a chorus girl kick line, and few precious jokes. Virtually everybody connected with the production was convinced he was involved with a box office disaster. Here was a musical without stars, without gags and humor, without the sex appeal of chorus girls and flimsy attire. Here was a musical that strayed into realism and grim tragedy, with the sexually predatory Jud as one of the main characters and his death as a climax of the story. Here, finally, was a musical which for the first time in Broadway history, leaned heavily upon American folk ballet, the choreography by Agnes DeMille, one of America's foremost choreographers and ballet dancers. Oklahoma might be fine art was the general consensus of opinion before premiere time, but it was poison at the box office. The effort to get the necessary financial backing proved to be a back operation, successfully consummated only because the theater guild, which had undertaken the production, had many friends and allies. But there was hardly an investor anywhere who did not think he was throwing his money down a sewer. When Oklahoma opened, out-of-town scouts sent back to New York the succinct message, no girls, no gags, no chance. After the New York opening, the line was revised to read, no girls, no gags, no tickets. For at that premiere performance, the surpassing beauty, the freshness, the imagination, and the magic of this musical play held the audience spellbound from the opening curtain on. The next day, the critics vied with each other in the expression of superlatives. One of them did not hesitate to describe it as a folk opera. But Oklahoma not only opened new vistas for the American musical theater with its new and unorthodox approaches and with the vitality and inspiration of Hammerstein's text and lyrics and Rodgers' music, it created box office history. It ran on Broadway for five years and nine months, breaking all of the then-existing records both for length of run and for box office receipts. A national company toured the United States for 10 years, performing in about 250 cities before an audience exceeding 10 million. In in addition, when the New York engagement ended, the original company went on tour of 71 cities. Companies were formed to produce the play in Europe, South Africa, Scandinavia, Australia, and for the armed forces in all the theaters of war during the last years of the Second World War. In London, its run proved the longest in the 300-year history of the Drury Lane Theatre. Based on Green Grow the Lilacs, a stage play by Lynn Riggs, Oklahoma brought together for the first time composer Richard Rodgers and lyricist Oscar Hammerstein II the duo would go on to write nine Broadway musicals together, but none would be as important for the development of American musical theater as Oklahoma. The plot is simple, revolving mainly around the question of who will take Laurie Williams to the box social, the decent Curly McLean or the sinister Jud Fry. However, Oklahoma continued in the tradition of showboat in its depiction of the pioneering men and women of the American Southwest. Oklahoma opened at the St. James Theatre on March 31, 1943 and ran for 2,212 performances. The original cast featured Joan Roberts as Laurie Williams, Alfred Drake as Curly McLean, and Howard da Silva as Jud Fry. The 1955 film version featured Gordon McRae and Shirley Jones. According to the New York Times article, a musical theater breakthrough, it had beautiful songs and dance all tightly integrated into a moody, bittersweet libretto that took little time out of the formulaic vaudeville and operetta spawned trivialities that marked most Broadway musical comedies of its time. Oklahoma ushered in the era of the serious musical. The old-fashioned musical comedy would never go away, of course. Just as Oklahoma shared its debut season with Cole Porter's Something for the Boys, so Oklahoma descendants like West Side Story and A Chorus Line would later coexist with The Music Man and Annie. But there was no turning back once Oklahoma had paved the way, commercially and artistically, for an American theatrical form in which script, song, and dance merged to create a drama as well as an escapist, Fairytale entertainment. A revolution had begun, albeit a slow one. Broadway musicals are created in the rough and tumble world of big money show business. Experimentation is tempered by the perilous realities of the mass media entertainment marketplace. But revolutionaries like Rogers and Hammerstein and their young protege, Stephen Sondheim, would go on to change the way musical theater was written. Beginning in his preteen years, even as Oklahoma was in its planning stages, Sondheim became a surrogate son and protege to Oscar Hammerstein. It was Hammerstein who instructed the young man in the craft of writing for the musical stage, bequeathing him. The breakthroughs of Showboat and Oklahoma. Once Sondheim's professional career began in the 1950s, he collaborated on shows with many other innovators in the music business, such as Leonard Bernstein and Harold Prince. The serious musicals that follow Oklahoma have come in several distinct forms: the musical play, in which libretto and score carry equal weight; the operatic musical; and the dance musical. And Sondheim. Has been associated with all of them. The musical play was pioneered by Hammerstein. Before Showboat and Oklahoma, musical numbers either didn't advance a script or advanced one that was at best jazz age fluff. Showboat dealt with unhappy marriages and miscegenations. Oklahoma, from Lynn Riggs' play Green Glow- Grow the Lilacs, had a sexually threatening villain. In form, Oklahoma went beyond its predecessor by accentuating songs in which the characters directly expressed their motivations and feelings. And the ballets were not thrown in there for fun, but, like the score, either advanced the story or explored a character's psyche. Musical plays, frequently adapted from sturdy plays and novels, reached their peak in the 1950s with shows such as Guys and Dolls and My Fair Lady. Just how important a libretto's architecture became to the musical can be seen by how few predecessors of Showboat and Oklahoma can hold the stage today, even when they contain a larger quotient of standard songs than the fluffy, libretto-poor musical comedies of the same period. Of all the Gershwin musicals, only Porgy and Bess is stageable now on its own terms instead of as a nostalgic, if not campy, artifact. Time has also eroded all Rogers and Hart musicals, except for those based on Shakespeare. Yet, even as the musical play ruled among Broadway's serious musicals and helped streamline the shape of less ambitious musical comedies, composers and choreographers were trying to stretch the musical away from the book and towards its other components, score and dance. The operatic musicals, not to be confused with actual operas that were booked into Broadway theaters, because few composers working within the Broadway system had either the musicianship or ambition to attempt them. Still, there are some important operatic musicals. Some such as Porgy and Bess and Sweeney Todd have entered opera company repertories. Operatic musicals have often resulted when serious composers decided to meet Broadway's showbiz demands halfway. Dance musicals, meanwhile, grew out of DeMille's advances in Oklahoma. It was DeMille's Freudian dream ballet for Roger and Hammerstein that integrated dance into the emotional fabric of a musical's story. DeMille soon became one of the first choreographers to stage an entire Broadway musical, the third Rogers and Hammerstein show, Allegro, in 1947, on which the teenager Sondheim served as production assistant. Ten years later, the dance musical's ascendancy began in earnest with Sondheim's first Broadway show, West Side Story, for which he wrote the lyrics. To Arthur Lawrence's adaptation of Romeo and Juliet and Bernstein's alternately Broadway and operatic score, the director-choreographer Jerome Robbins added not only dances, but dance sequences. The whole show seemed to be choreographed. In spite of Sondheim's important excursions into the operatic musical, such as Sweeney Todd, the musical play, such as A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, and his operetta, A Little Night Music, he made his reputation with the dance musical. After West Side Story, he wrote the lyrics to Jules Stein's score and Lawrence's book for the next Robin production, and perhaps, to this day, the most perfectly achieved dance musical, Gypsy. In 1964, Sondheim contributed a score to another yet unaccessible dance musical, Anyone Can Whistle. His scores were imaginatively tailored to the needs of the dramatic material. And unlike Rogers and Hammerstein, he made no concessions to Broadway taste. Sondheim dismissed by serious music audiences, reviled by conservative Broadway theater audiences for failing to write, hummable songs, and unknown to most hip young audiences, inevitably came a cult figure. But Stephen Sondheim hadn't always been successful. His 1981 show, Merrily We Roll Along, expired in three weeks, seemingly bringing the Sondheim age of the musical to an end. He had run through the dance musical, the operatic musical, and the musical play, only to end up in Merrily, with an self martyring musical that blamed Broadway and possibly even Hammerstein for his own creative and commercial frustrations. Sunday in the Park with George grows directly out of the ashes of Merrily and rebels against it. Catastrophe may have inspired Sondheim to revise his thinking about the Broadway musical. The show began its career at Playwrights Horizons, a non-profit 150-seat theater off-Broadway. This allowed the piece a far longer gestation period than Broadway economics permit and also enabled Sondheim to have an uncharacteristically intimate involvement with the day-by-day production process. Sunday also marked the first time in years that Sondheim did a musical without Prince or any other Broadway veterans as collaborators. Sunday in the Park explores several major themes including change, art versus commerce, and the interplay of art and science. The Broadway production won two Tony Awards, eight Drama Desk Awards, as well as the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1985. The commercial success of Sunday has prompted other producers to take a chance on more ambitious shows and the evolution of musical theater continues on and on. So. Why should anyone care about the aesthetic upheavals caused by a Broadway musical? A few years ago, in a published reminiscence about Oscar Hammerstein, Sondheim offered his own view. Hammerstein was a giant, Sondheim wrote, because he changed the texture of the American musical theater forever, first with Kern, then with Rogers, and to change that means not only to change musical theater all over the world, but to change all American theater as well, because musical theater has affected playwriting profoundly and permanently. It's debatable whether Hammerstein changed all American theater, but that has been the great hope for Broadway's one original theatrical form throughout its history. In Sunday in the Park with George, Sondheim The inheritor of that history has changed the texture of the musical as radically as Hammerstein once did in Oklahoma. But even more than Hammerstein did, he has built a bridge between the musical and the more daring playwriting of his time. Should Sondheim keep moving on and moving on up with others, he may yet become a giant he saw his teacher to be, one who leaves our theater profoundly and permanently changed. Thank you for listening to this analysis of the history of the American musical. If you'd like to give those articles pulled for this co- podcast another look, they were Oklahoma from theaterhistory.com, a musical theater breakthrough by Frank Rich of the New York Times, 1984, and intersections of theater theories of spectatorship with musical theater practices in performance and production by Jean Louise Balch of the University of Colorado at Boulder, 2012. I hope you enjoyed learning about the founding musicals and writers of the American musical. And if you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to tune into Broadway Bangers every Thursday from 8 to 10 on bakerradio.org if you'd like to hear a sample of their music. Thanks for listening. Until next time.